Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we are starting a six-week series on the topic of apologetics. If you don't know what apologetics is, that's perfectly fine. We will jump into that at the very beginning of this lesson. But suffice it to say, we're going to be talking about some difficult questions surrounding Christianity, philosophical questions, uh, presuppositional questions, questions that you should have all asked and answered at the point at which you became a Christian. The thing is, growing up in the church, many of us did not. Now, if you're listening and you're an unbeliever, an atheist, or an agnostic, this is a great lesson for you because we're going to ask the question of, does life matter if God does not exist? So this is the perhaps most basic of philosophical questions as it relates to religion, and so I really hope that you enjoy it. So let's get started. All right, so I'm going to start with this question of, and it's very easy, is what are your New Year's resolutions for 2018? So I was not here last week uh, to go over that really right at New Year's, but what are your resolutions? This should be an easy discussion topic. To get to church more closely, to be on time. Okay. Baby steps. <laughs> So to get to church more closely on time, that's great. I like that. Y'all are early today, right? No. No, okay. Well, you're here. It was week, it was week one. We have some time still for just <laughs> There you go. I usually get worse as the year goes on, so I don't know, but maybe you'll get better. Um, all right, any other resolutions? Keith, are you a resolutions guy? Uh, finding a seat today would be good. Finding a seat today. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> Okay, be a better parent. All right. Any other resolutions? They don't have to be uh, big and important. They can be, you know, the typical resolutions. Get in shape, eat better. Aren't those, don't people make those resolutions? Give me a couple more, like just anything. Hello. I guess we don't have resolutions, people. Not a resolutions person, huh? Not goal-oriented? Okay. I think other common ones would be like vacation more, right? Maybe spend more time with your spouse, things like that, right? Not yell at your kids. Not yell at your kids. Okay, great. All right, so let me ask this question. It's kind of related. What gets you out of bed in the morning? All right, so Scott, you can't answer the resolutions question. Maybe you can answer this one. What, What gets you out of bed in the morning? Responsibility. Responsibility. Okay. Fear of getting fired. Or what's going to happen if I don't get there. That's motivating. Yeah. Okay. Consequences. Yeah, Sounds like nobody really wants to, wants to get out of bed. They just feel like they have to. <laughs> Anything else? Anything like on a positive side of coffee? Coffee gets you out of bed and, and then it keeps you awake? Exercise. Exercise. I mean, depending on the day, like I can be really excited about what's going to happen at work. Sure. That's not an everyday occurrence. Sure. I won't let your students know that. They, they would think you would think it was exciting every day. All right. So those were good answers. All right. Here is the next question that kind of follows after that. How many of those resolutions and how many of those things that get you out of bed in the morning will matter after you die? So even, you know, being a better parent, um, consequences of your job, exercise, whatever yours was, not getting fired, will that matter after you die? I hope coffee is in heaven. I think we can safely say coffee's in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a rhetorical question because I think the answer is probably not. 
right? Maybe some of it does. Maybe some of it doesn't. Losing weight, getting, you know, fitter, nah, it doesn't matter, I don't think. So our heavenly bodies will be, uh, you know, perfectly sculpted, right? Um, here's another question. If God doesn't exist, does any of that matter? Do any of these resolutions matter? I don't know. So that's a question we're going to ask today, all right? Now, does anyone know who Logan Paul is? Oh, no. Okay. Um, so if you're over the age of 30, you don't know who Logan Paul is. If you're under the age of 30, he's your favorite. No. Uh, Logan Paul is uh, one of the most famous YouTubers. He's got 15 million subscribers. Uh, and what I have found is, is that in our generation, and I say our like very, you know, generally, because there's probably 15, 20 years of a span here. Uh, but if you're probably under the age of 25 or so, you do watch YouTube more often. And actually, YouTube, of all the social media networks, which it kind of falls under that, categories actually watched more than anything else so people spend more time on that than even Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or anything like that um, but anyway he is a really popular one 15 million subscribers a big deal this week he had a lot of controversy because he went to this forest in Japan where it's famous for people committing suicide so they call it a suicide forest so if you know anything about Japanese culture suicide is a big deal in that culture and so he went to this forest and he's wearing like this stupid hat looks like the little three-eyed alien from Toy Story that's his hat and he's with his friends and he's looking for I don't know something to make a video about and so he finds sure enough someone who's hung themselves like in their business outfit their bag is right next to him he actually checks his pockets and he's still got his wallet in there the dude's dead and he like films it kind of looks at it, he blurs out the face and then he kind of like acts awkward and he like sort of laughs about it and people are furious at this guy because he's making light of suicide and he's also showing how someone committed suicide in this video when he has all these followers, most of whom would be under the age of 20, okay? My question is, should people be outraged? Because they are, and they're calling for him to be removed from YouTube and all this kind of stuff. Um, but my question is, is, if there is no God, should it matter that he's made this video? Now certainly people who are outraged, they don't only not believe in God. Some of them would believe in God. Some of them would not. Some of them don't really know, okay? But if God does not exist, should it matter? Should suicide matter if God doesn't exist? Uh, should a famous YouTuber showing a dead body matter? Should that person's privacy matter? Okay? And then I think this question is true, is that should a parent of a 15-year-old child that is struggling with depression be worried that their child might be watching this if there is no God? Now, I think naturally, like the humanistic side of us would say, well, of course we should be concerned. Of course, if I have a 15-year-old who's dealing with depression, I don't want them to watch this. I don't want them to get an idea about suicide. I don't want suicide normalized, and so on and so forth. But the true question is, and I think it's logical to ask, is does it really matter? Okay? We can go deeper into that, but I want us to kind of think along those lines. Let's first talk about apologetics. So David had said we might talk about this. We are going to talk about it. And perfect timing for Eric, I'm about to butcher a Greek word, so do a little koine on you. Um, but I believe it comes from the Greek, is it apologia? Is that right? Yeah. Sweet. I didn't brutalize it. Uh, and that means speaking in defense, literally. So you're probably familiar with apologetics. We have talked about that. If you're not, it is the religious discipline of defending or attempting to prove the truth of religious doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. Kind of a boring definition. I think in basic terms, apologetics is just defense of our faith, okay, using arguments, logic, reason. All right, is this a biblical thing? I think this comes up is, well, why do we focus so much time on this? Can't we just talk about Jesus, or can't we just read books of the Bible? Um, it is biblical. One of the verses I think that most supports it would be 1 Peter 3.15. 
It says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. All right, so I think this reminds me of when I'm like 15 or 16 and I sit in a Bible class and they teach me some sort of like five-step way to convince someone that Jesus exists or that Christianity is true, and you feel like empowered to go out and like want to spout that out at someone and you want to make them become a Christian, right? And you almost do it in this way, like it's sort of prideful and it's almost like hateful in a way of like, well, you don't believe and here's why you're wrong. And I think it's important that as we talk about these things, it's not the way that we approach it. It's also not the way that we approach it with our kids eventually when they deal with faith struggles, okay? And so being ready to defend our faith does not mean that we should be mean. It doesn't mean that we should be hateful. Um, it tends to be, I think, that in any situation, like if you like a band or you like a movie or you like a topic and someone questions you on that and you don't know a lot about it really, like you're kind of called out on how, how little you actually know. So like, let's say Jawan says he doesn't like Mike Conley. He thinks he's not very good. You say, well, why don't you like Mike Conley? Be like, I just don't like him. You know, it's like, we don't know anything about why you don't like him. If instead, though, he's like, well, because he only averaged this many points and this, you know, da, 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 which John Juan, would, he would be able to do. You know, whether he's wrong or not, he would be able to do that. Um, but the truth is, with apologetics, if you know why you believe what you believe and someone questions you, you don't have to be hateful or mean because you can defend it. You can be calm and you can stay reasonable, right? Um, and it's also biblical to not be ugly or mean. So in Ephesians 4.15, it says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So speak the truth in love. As it said in 1 Peter, do it with gentleness and respect. So if we learn these things and we know them well enough, there's no need to get mad. There's no need to be like, which you get, you get kind of angry when we talk about Mike Conley, and that's okay. <laughs> just a little, you're just a little immature in your uh, you know, faith of his abilities. But um, I think that's the point of today, is not to give you some sort of script where you now get up on a soapbox and yell at people. It's to give you, you know, truth that you can share with others uh, kindly and respectfully. Why are we studying this for six weeks? Um, give a lot of answers to this. I think the number one answer is because David decided that we we're going to study this for six weeks. But uh, I would say this is that, and I don't mean this 100% absolutely, but uh, we aren't as effective at evangelism and certainly not at discipleship if we don't fully believe what Christianity says, okay? I don't think that only people come to Christ through these like really intellectual and reasoned arguments, of course, uh, but I think it certainly helps. Um, I would even go as far as to say is, is that if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, it puts our families at risk, puts our own faith at risk, and it puts the church at risk, okay? If we don't really know what we believe. All right, so William Lane Craig is the guy that has written the book that we're talking about. Does anyone know who that is? David, have you ever heard of him? Um, he's a 68-year-old. He's 68 now. American philosopher, Christian apologist. Uh, he's best known for this uh, thing called the Kalam cosmological argument. Anyone familiar with that? You've heard of that, right? No? Yeah. So how does the Kalam cosmological argument go? We'll have a whole class on it in a few weeks. But okay. Basically, it's... So, um, for most of history, most atheists thought the universe existed forever. They thought it was eternal. So it turns out, scientific evidence this century says, no, the universe had a beginning. And so then you say, well, if the universe had a beginning, then I think there's some important spiritual questions from that. And anything that begins to exist has a cause, right? So if the universe did, in fact, begin to exist, then the universe must have a cause. Yeah. And so um, I, I think there's some important reflections on both. Well, so science tells us the universe came into, came into existence. Whether you went to a Christian or a non-Christian high school, you probably learned this. Some call it the Big Bang sometimes. The universe didn't exist, then it came into existence. 
So if the universe came to exist, then there's good science to show that, so we go over that science. And we also believe that things don't come into existence out of nothing, right? This chair is here because it was built and put here. It didn't just pop into existence. So why would the universe be any different? So if the universe began to exist, things that begin to exist have a cause, then the universe must have a cause. So what kind of thing would cause the universe? And you can see how pretty quickly you're getting into some important questions about life and the universe and about God. Yeah, great job. So don't come in two weeks when he teaches about that because you've already got it. Um, so that is a pretty important argument in those circles, not something that maybe you're familiar with unless you are. Um, but he does debate atheists, and so on certain topics like these and others, this topic today is one that he's debated atheists on. Uh, and then he has a ministry called reasonablefaith.org. Um, we'll talk about this later, but these sorts of arguments don't all land with people. It may mean nothing to you, and it may be something that really draws you in. And that's okay. Not every defense of Christianity or defense of certain aspects of faith will land with everyone. Um, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, the book is called On Guard, and so I do recommend uh, you picking it up if you're interested in this sort of thing. It is a really simple book, and it's written in such a way that you could follow along, whether this is your thing or not. It's got little like photos and little sidebars. It's a great book, and it's gotten beaten up from teaching on this and studying on this. It's a simplification of a bigger book called Reasonable Faith. We can pull some chairs out too if, if we need to, um, which is really academic and really dense and heavy. Um, and this came out in 2010. Uh, and the idea of on guard, obviously it's like an allusion to like fencing, like on guard, is that we should be on guard at all times to defend our faith. All right, so I want to look uh, kind of practically at three reasons for apologetics. If you're not convinced still yet as to why we're doing this, the first is... It allows us to shape culture. And I think whether we realize it or not, American culture has become post-Christian. I would think that we would probably say, certainly in the South, that that's not true, that we would still have a Christian nation or a Christian culture. Um, but I think that we're certainly already post-Christian, whether you realize it or not. Uh, you look at Europe, which is a few decades ahead of us culturally, and Christianity is more or less a joke in Europe. Okay. Certainly like an area like Scandinavia, it's not even really considered an option, certainly not a viable one if you're intellectual. Um, and so we need to help foster a, a culture where the gospel is viewed as an intellectually viable option for thinking men and women. Now don't hear me wrong, I don't mean that this means that, you know what, we got to get senators, we got to get our president, we got to like, you know, kind of from the top down, we've got to make people like authoritatively like believe this and think this way. What I mean is, is that we have to change the way that Christianity is viewed in our culture. And if the only people who are Christians are famous ones uh, who may not even actually be Christians, the culturally relevant ones who maybe sell sort of a Christianity in water type of Christianity, uh, or if in our personal relationships we can't even defend what we believe in, then Christianity will not sustain culturally. Okay, And so apologetics gives us at least an option by which we can shape culture and it doesn't mean the way that you think, like culture wars or something. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about we have to be able to support what we believe and not be a joke. Okay? All right, the second one is that it helps. Make sure I get this in the right order. Yeah. Helps us to shape believers. Okay? I think this is the most self-evident thing about apologetics. I think this is probably where our minds first go when we think about these sort of arguments. Um, and I don't mean to beat up on youth groups, so don't hear me wrong there. Um, I love our youth group, I love youth groups in general, but I do think that the need for apologetics could be best seen with what's happening with our youth groups and our youth, okay? 
And so as you probably know, Barna did some, some studies on this, and it's about 70% of kids that are leaving the church during college right now, presently. Not necessarily at Highland, maybe we're only 56%, I don't know, but 70% in their study are leaving the church, and that should give us huge pause. That should scare the crap out of us, right? Um, and here's a quote from the book that I think puts into perspective what I'm talking about. I think the church is really failing these kids, these teens, Rather than provide them training in the defense of Christianity's truth, we focus on emotional worship experiences, felt needs, and entertainment. It's no wonder they become sitting ducks for that teacher or professor who rationally takes aim at their faith. Hmm. And so I would say, of course, apologetics is not like a magic bullet. It's not like a magic spell. Okay, It's, it's not going to guarantee that your child keeps the faith or that it's, you, you do these incantations and now the child is... You know, he's going to be a perfect Christian the rest of his life, but it definitely can help. And if, if the best we can do with a teenager that is about to head off into college and about to think for themselves and to be on their own is just wish them well and send, on, send them on their way, it's, it's kind of idiotic. So we should be preparing them for battle. I mean, that's, that's what life is, and I don't know that we're doing as good a job as we could. All right, the last thing is, is that apologetics allows us to shape unbelievers. I think this would be something that some people would disagree with, and, and William Lane Craig says that he hears all the time, well, apologetics, it might help in strengthening a believer, but no one comes to Christ through arguments. Would anyone sort of like in your gut sort of agree with that? Or would that be kind of your feeling? I see some head nods. Okay, I think that's fair. Um, based on what he says, I would say that that isn't true. All right, I think that there are unbelievers who have come to faith through arguments. Maybe it's not the most common method. Maybe it's not the best method. I think, again, it comes back to this idea that if apologetics, you're using it in a hateful way or in like a kind of lording over or a condescending way, then that's not going to work. Um, but we've got plenty of examples of it working. Um, you've got people like C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, who did Case for Christ, Case for Faith. Has anybody read those books? Um, very you know, analytical, reasonable type apologetics works. Obviously, C.S. Lewis goes without saying, we just study the guy, right, for like five weeks. Uh, seven weeks, I think. Um, they've been very successful with books on apologetics. And so has someone like William Lane Craig to obviously a lesser degree. Um, I think it's also to say that, I said this earlier, is that apologetics is not like some magic spell. This is not like we have sort of like the three steps to get someone to believe and that works. Okay, it might work sometimes. Um, but man, it, you know, it, <laughs> it sort of minimalizes the whole... Uh, you know, evangelism in general, if we can't act like it has to be organized. Like, I think that it's really common to look at evangelism or discipleship and be like, it should just kind of happen. You know, like, if we try and make it too organized, uh, I don't want anything to do with that. But that's not how any of the rest of us live in any other walk in life. Like, let's say you're Nick Saban. Do you think Nick Saban is organized about the way in which he coaches? Uh, or do you think he just kind of shows up? He's like, you know what, I've got some talent, and I think it's going to work out. That dude has been sleeping four hours a night for the last... 30 years, I guess, or whatever, you know, so that he can plan, he can watch video, and he can arrange plays, and he can come up with game scripts, and all this kind of stuff, so that he can win, because he really wants to win. If what we want is people to believe in God, and believe in Jesus, and accept him as their savior, we can't just go into it with this, like, ah, oh, man, it's whatever. Like, Jesus is your homeboy, you know, like, it's just, it makes no sense whatsoever, and so I'm only convinced that we don't care that it happens, or that we don't believe it ourselves. If we, if we don't want to train up and, and, and understand these things better. Um, and you could say this too, is, is that we should expect that most unbelievers will remain unconvinced by our apologetic arguments 
just as most remain unmoved by the preaching of the cross. I don't think there's any like single argument that's like making a huge difference in itself and in a bottle. Okay. Um, and I say this too, is, is that he admits this, is that not everyone resonates with apologetics or these kind of discussions. Some people are more moved by like art or like music or like just the beauty of nature. Um, that's not necessarily me. I'm more of an analytical person. Like this stuff, it moves me a lot. So he says that engineers, people in medicine, and lawyers are more moved by these arguments. Okay? So take it for what that's worth. All right, so let's move into this idea of the meaninglessness of life without God or this question of, what difference does it make if God exists? Does it make a difference if God exists, okay? You're sitting in a church, you would say, of course, of course it matters if God exists. I wouldn't be here if it didn't. Um, but here's a quote that kind of, I think, brings home why we're asking this question. Part of the challenge of getting American people to think about God is that they've become so used to God that they just take him for granted. They never think to ask what the implications would be if God did not exist. As a result, they think that God is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether God exists or not, okay? Unfortunately, this, this idea that it doesn't matter whether God exists or not is not something that you can logically say, okay? With good intellectual faith, you cannot say that it does not matter if God exists. So all of our existential philosophers, whether you study those or not, you look at like Friedrich Nietzsche or somebody, he said that God was dead, but he understood that it mattered. He understood that the conclusion of that is, is that life is absurd. Life is pointless. All right, and so because of that, then he would make a conclusion. All right, but you look at uh, uh, Albert, uh, you know, I can say these names in English, like Camus, Camus, um, and like Jean-Paul Sartre. All these guys made these conclusions as existential philosophers that life is purposeless because God doesn't exist. They didn't believe God existed, so we would believe he exists. But the point is, is that if God does not exist, life is absurd. All right, and so before someone will want to listen to arguments on why God exists, the first step is to get them to believe that it matters whether or not God exists, okay? So I guess my question is, what difference does it make if God exists? Like if somebody asks you, like, what, what does it matter if God exists or not? What would you say? The silent treatment. I like that. That's, that's a good strategy. Yeah, it's good. So it gives life purpose if God exists. Okay. Hmm? We may or may not be talking about that later. Religion as a whole throughout history has shaped what we call now a moral compass. So I know, I know plenty of people that don't believe hmm. in God. I've had conversations with, with people about that. And they're good, respectable, moral individuals. So I would never say you can't be that without mm -hmm. the existence of God. Because to them, he absolutely does not exist. Mm -hmm. So, but like I said, they're outstanding, good. I would trust them with my children. Sure. Trust them with my finances, people. Uh, but even their moral compass, I believe, through my studies of history, of, at the beginning were shaped from religion. Uh, so they may not see that now, and I can understand that. 
but to, and maybe it's my own bias playing into this, but it was still at, at the beginning shaped from religion. Mm-hmm. Not that religion, not that we've always used religion, religion to shape positive things either. So I think that's another conversation. Yeah. Slavery was in part shaped with religion. Sure. Uh, so I think we should look at that aspect as well. But on the moral compass, I, I, you know, I believe that that's that's happened. Yeah. So what you're what you're kind of bringing up is: Are we doing the moral argument with this series? Okay. Perfect. Well, Scott will answer all those questions. So something called the moral argument: the idea that morality, in an objective sense, which we will discuss object, objectivity and subjectivity here in a second. In an objective sense, morality has to emanate from something that's outside of the existence that we all have and we all share. Um, so that will be what we, we discuss later. So absolutely. Yeah, I think the question is like why, like we might both agree on, with, with, with someone who doesn't believe, we might both agree that, that certain things are good and certain things are bad, but why have we come to that conclusion? I think that's, that's the question. Why, do we, why have we come to that, to that conclusion? Hmm. The other question I would have is, what what is my worth as a person and and again why am i worth more than like that podium that you're leaning on Mm -hmm. like what differentiates me as a person from 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 that podium that you would throw away and burn in a fire um and i think that you know there are there are ways to answer that probably um for people who don't believe that 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 satisfies them um but maybe it makes more sense or maybe the question it's a little harder to, to answer when you start saying, why am I worth more than like a dog or a cat? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and is, is it intelligence? So then is a, someone who's more intelligent worth more than someone who's less intelligent? Like you start to ask these questions and um, you know, I believe that there's, we're made in the image of God. And so that, yeah, that, that's why we're worth more, so. Sure. Did it be clear, I never said that you were more valuable than this podium. I don't Just think, to, yeah, it's, so, it's up for debate. Certainly not as I stand here and I lean on this. Right, so, um, But no, these are the questions that most of us don't sit back and think through, and maybe it's because we have screens, I don't know, but like, these are the questions that these existential philosophers who ended up rejecting religion, they thought through these things, and they took the argument to its logical ends, and the idea that God does not exist, taken to its logical end, ends up with life being absurd. It's like, what is the point? What is to differentiate a man from a, from a whiteboard, okay? Really nothing. We're all just stardust, effectively, okay? All right, so here's another existential, existential philosopher, Solomon, uh, from Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with that book, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So the sort of theme of Ecclesiastes is life is meaningless, right? Um, so here we go. If there is no God and no life beyond the grave, then life itself has no objective meaning, value, or purpose. Now those words sound connected, and they are, but we're going to talk about each of these in turn, meaning, value, and purpose, and they are unique. Okay, so meaning would have to do with significance or why something matters, why does it mean something, Value would have to do with good and evil, right and wrong. Why is it valuable? And the purpose would have to do with a goal or a reason for something. So Scott brought up purpose. These are all things that without God, objectively, these things don't matter. Okay, objectively, life doesn't contain these things. All right, so let's talk very quickly about objective and subjective. Can someone give me a quick, like, 10-second take on what the difference between those two is? 
Opinion versus fact. Okay, opinion versus, yeah, it's good. It's great. Yeah, so William Lane Craig, the way he puts it is, when you think of objective, think of an object or something that truly exists, okay, and so that truth, is, it's factual, whereas subjective, think of a subject or a person that could hold an opinion, and so it's subjective, so it could change. You could have a subjective opinion about the best barbecue in Memphis, and I could have a different subjective opinion about the best barbecue in Memphis, right? Um, and so that's the difference. Think of a subject versus an object. And so objectively, what we mean by that is, is that um, you could say that if atheism is true, then life is really objectively meaningless, valueless, and purposeless, despite our subjective beliefs to the contrary. Let me say it one more time because I, I want this to, to come across. Is athea if atheism is true, meaning there is no God, then life is really objectively meaningless, valueless, and purposeless, despite our subjective beliefs to the contrary. Let me read this quote. And this is important, this is what you're saying. Is I'm not saying that atheists experience life as dull or meaningless, that they have no personal values or lead immoral lives. We know that's not true. That they have no goals or purpose for living. On the contrary, life would be unbearable and unlivable without such beliefs. Okay? But those beliefs and that meaning and that purpose and that value is illusory if God does not exist. Okay? So that's why it matters whether God exists or not is because everything we do is an illusion if he doesn't. All right? And we'll go into those in more details. Uh, here's a quote by a guy named Lauren Isley. I really like it, so I'm going to read it. Man is the cosmic orphan. He's the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. Who am I? Man asks. Why am I here? Where am I going? Ever since the Enlightenment, when modern man threw off the shackles of religion, he has tried to answer those questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that in throwing off God, he had freed himself and all that stifled and repressed him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had only succeeded in orphaning himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes utterly absurd. It is without ultimate meaning, without ultimate value, without ultimate purpose. And so I guess you could say, it's like, well, what are your options? If this is true, if God doesn't exist, and, and as such, life is meaningless, valueless, purposeless. Your, your first option, I think, is to commit suicide. What's the point? Okay, that's what uh, Albert uh, Camus would say. The second alternative is to face absurdity of life and to live bravely. Okay, to live bravely. That kind of reminds me of like a scene of like a thousand soldiers lined up and one guy just like bravely going in to try and beat them, right? You could call that bravery or you could call that stupidity, right? All right, he's not going to win. He's going to die. He's going to be chopped down real quick. You could call him brave. You could call that courageous or you could call it dumb. Okay, so to me, I would say that it's dumb to understand the absurdity of life if God doesn't exist and to live bravely, to come up with the illusion of meaning, value, and purpose so that you can get through life. The braver thing would be to commit suicide, to end it all, if you don't believe in it. I'm not advocating for that, okay? Because <laughs> I do believe that there's meaning, value, and purpose in life. I believe there is a God. But if that's really the truth, then the bravest thing to do would be to end it all and be done with it, okay? All right, so I would say this is just because life is absurd without God does not mean he exists, okay? So just because you convince, convince someone that life is meaningless without God doesn't mean they're like, I believe in God, you know? But it is an important first step. It's why we're starting with this topic, okay? So let's look very quickly at 
these ideas of if God does not exist, there's no ultimate meaning, value, or purpose. So meaning, again, has to do with significance or why something matters. And here's a statement, is that without immortality, meaning that we live on beyond this life, your life has no ultimate significance and makes no difference to the world's outcome. Said another way, if the universe is all there is, and it will die someday, and of course will die before it dies, then what difference does your life actually make? Does that make sense? Are you following that? So if the, if the universe is going to die, and it will, it's going to come to a halt at some point in the future, okay? We're already going to be dead. If that's the case, and that's the end, what difference does it make that we live at all? Does it make any difference? Okay? Here's a quote. The contributions of the scientists to the advance of human knowledge, the researches of the doctor to alleviate pain and suffering, the efforts of the diplomat to secure peace in the world, the sacrifices of good people everywhere to better the lot of the human race, all these come to nothing. This is the horror of modern man. Because he ends in nothing, he is nothing. Okay, I can tell you're all depressed. I'm sorry. Um, so we need two things in life for it to be ultimately significant, to be objectively significant. Those two things are immortality, meaning that there is life that is possible beyond these 80 years, and we need God. Okay, we need a being that exists outside of space and time. Okay, those are the two things. We need immortality, we need God. And if God doesn't exist, then immortality is not possible, and as such, neither is significance or meaning, purpose, or value. Okay? And we don't matter. All right, next one is value. So, without God, there is no ultimate value, and this has to do with good and evil, right and wrong. I think this is a really interesting one, especially right now at the time in our culture, is without immortality, there is no moral accountability, and your moral choices become inconsequential. Okay, so this is the moral argument that we'll talk about. Uh, here's another quote. If life ends at the grave, then it makes no ultimate difference whether you live as a Stalin or a Mother Teresa, since your destiny is ultimately unrelated to your behavior, you may as well just live as you please. Now, tell someone straight in the face who's an atheist that it doesn't matter if you live as Stalin and Mother Teresa, and what are they going to say? Well, I reject that. Okay? Now, a, a Nietzsche would say, you're right. <laughs> you're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, which Anna, say, say it correctly. Fyodor. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> so, Fyodor... Um, he said, if there is no immortality, this is what we're talking about, if life doesn't go beyond this, then all things are permitted. What does it, what does it matter? Really, what does it matter? Um, and so here is sort of the morality of an atheist would be this, is that without God, moral values are just delusions ingrained into us by evolution and social conditioning. As such, they are subjective and purposeless. So let's look at something like animal rights. If a lion attacks a hyena and bites his head off, you know, makes him bleed out and then eats him. Is that murder? It's nature. That's just nature, man. That's just survival. That lion's just doing its thing. It's actually genetically programmed to do such a thing. It's just doing, it's doing what's in its instinct, okay? If a seagull takes another fish from another seagull, is that stealing? No, man, that's just nature. That's just the way things are. So how come we get to decide that it is stealing or that it is murder if humans do it? If it's all that we are is nature and naturalism rules and it's survival of the fittest and it's Darwinian evolution, like, that is not stealing, that is not murder. Those are just social constructs that we come up with to protect ourselves. And as such, those are subjective things. Those don't have ultimate value, those ideas that we have. Um, we could go even further. What about women's rights? What about, I mean, on, and I'm 
going to be careful with this because I don't want you to hear this wrong. What about black rights? What about any of this kind of stuff? I mean, you could, you could justify on a naturalistic level, and people did, that you could say that uh, either a woman or a black person or whatever would be inferior because of perceived power, okay? And that is dead wrong. We would reject that now, but on what grounds can we reject that? Okay? We reject it based on a Judeo-Christian sense of morality. Okay? All right. No ultimate purpose. This will be the last one. And purpose is, has to do with a goal or reason for something. So without immortality, your only destination is extinction and death. Okay? So if death stands with open arms at the end of life's trail, then what is the goal of life? Is it all for nothing? What's, what, where's your purpose in that? I want to read this. This is from, uh, has anyone ever read H.G. Uh, Wells? Has anyone ever read a book by H.G. Wells? Yeah, so I think it's probably his two most popular would be The Time Machine and then War of the Worlds. Um, I have read War of the Worlds. I have not read Time Machine, but I've seen the old movie, which is pretty good. So in The Time Machine, guy creates a time machine. He goes way back in time. I think he spends most of the book there. At the very end, he goes as far into the future as he can go. Okay, and what happens, I think, is sort of the end of the book, and it has to do with purpose. All right, so Wells' time traveler journeys far into the future to discover the destiny of man. Of course, you'd, want, you'd be curious, right? I'm going to go. If I had a time machine, I'd go, I want to go back to Jesus' time. I want to see kind of like what that was about. I want to go all the way to the beginning of time. And then naturally, I want to go to the end of the time. I want to see what, you know, what's going to happen. All he finds, though, is a dead earth, except for a few lichens and moss, orbiting a gigantic red sun. The only sounds are the rush of the wind and the gentle ripple of the sea. Beyond these lifeless sounds, writes Wells, the world was silent. Silent. It would be hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleeding of sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, the stir that makes the background of our lives, all that was over. And so Wells' time traveler returned. But what did he return to? He returned to people that were living with a sense of purpose when there was none, right? And, and William Lake Craig says when he read this as a non-believer, he was like, that's not how this can end. This is terrible. Like, this is awful. What a terrible ending. This is like an ending in a movie where you don't get resolution. You have no hope for the future. Maybe the main character just dies, and you're like, that can't be how it ends. Like, I need a better ending. I'm a weird guy. I actually like endings like that. I like it when it's, like, different or subverts expectation. But... We don't usually like those endings, okay? And so if you go and you, you know the future brings nothing and that the, the earth is just going to die and nothing's going to happen, what's the point in living if not for God? Okay. All right. And here is kind of the, the conclusion of all this. If God is dead, then man is dead too. Okay? So if God is dead, man is dead too. All right. So let's conclude this. And I, of course, am over time, but we have just a little bit left. Here is the point. is that It's impossible to live consistently, intellectually, and happily with an atheistic worldview, okay? Now, you can be inconsistent and happy, or you can be consistent and unhappy as an atheist, but you cannot be consistent and happy as an atheist, okay? Um, and if we live happily as atheists, it's only by inconsistently affirming meaning, value, and purpose for our lives, despite the lack of foundation for them. All right, so I want you to look here. This is something that Francis Schaeffer came up with, and this is called the two-story uh, universe. And so you have the upper story where things like God live and meaning, value, and purpose. And then you have the lower story where man and physical world exist. And uh, in the lower story is the finite world without God. Here life is absurd, and we have, uh, as we have seen. In the upper story are meaning, value, and purpose. Now modern man lives in the lower story because he believes there is no God. 
but he cannot happily live in such an absurd world. Therefore, he continually makes leaps of faith into the upper story to affirm meaning, value, and purpose, even though he has no right to, since he does not believe in God. So if you live in this realm where things are grounded, things are naturalistic, only man and the physical world exist, it's terrible. It's absurd. It's not fun. You cannot be happy. And so you can make these leaps of faith, as it were, to kind of grab at things from the second story. But it's, it's inconsistent. It's intellectually uh, kind of silly. All right? All right, so of course, Christianity, we would say, challenges this worldview, okay? And in Christianity, God exists and life does not end at the grave, okay? Um, and then so, as we said earlier, biblical Christianity affirms the two conditions that you need for life to be meaningful, valuable, and purposeful. And that would be God and immortality, okay? All right, so that gives us the ability to live consistently and happily. Uh, there's a thing called Pascal's Wager, and we have about two minutes left. Pascal was a, a very smart guy that kind of did one of the first statistical kind of theories or concepts, and his wager effectively was is that if Christianity is untrue, then you give up some temporary joys and you don't lose anything. But if Christianity is true, you give up some temporary things, but you gain eternity. And so his wager was, let's say that both options are logically equal. Well, if I'm making a bet, I'm going to bet on the horse that's going to pay the best, right? Okay? And so that's his wager, as it were. Ephesians 1, 18, 19, then I'm going to have a quote to end this. Ephesians 1, 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So there is a reward for believing this stuff, okay? For believing it differently. And here's how William Lane Craig closes out this chapter. Now, I want to make it clear that I have not yet shown biblical Christianity to be true, but what I have done is clearly spell out the alternatives. If God does not exist, then life is futile. If the God of the Bible does exist, then life is meaningful. Only the second of these two alternatives enables us to live happily and consistently. Therefore, it seems to me that even if the evidence for these two options were absolutely equal, a rational person ought to choose biblical Christianity. It seems to me positively irrational to prefer death futility and destruction to life, meaningfulness, and happiness. As Pascal said, we have nothing to lose and infinity to gain. Okay, so thanks for listening in this week. I hope you uh, got something out of that. If this is a t sort of topic that it, it engages you and you uh, felt like you had more questions about this, reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk, get on the phone with you, discuss some of these things. I do think these are the sort of topics that deserve time to think about, to discuss, to wrestle with, whether you believe it and it means something to you or not, um, I, I think we owe it to ourselves as humans to ask these deep and philosophical questions. I would also recommend that you pick up a copy of On Guard by William Lane Craig. If you're an unbeliever, you're an atheist, you're a Christian, whatever, I, I think he's raising good questions and he's trying to answer them in a responsible and reasonable way. All right, these are not just, you know, slide of hand arguments he's using. These are things that, uh, you know, even an atheist would debate him over because they are valid and he treats it in an intellectual way. Okay. Um, you could also watch some of his videos on YouTube. He has debates that he does with, uh, you know, men like Christopher Hitchens or, you know, famous atheists where he discusses this, these sort of things. And you can hear both sides of the argument and decide for yourself what you think is true. Ultimately, the question we asked today was, does it matter if God exists? And I think the answer to that is, yes, it does. 
intellectually, if you're an atheist, it does matter if God exists. It means that life is absurd. If you're a Christian, it obviously it matters if God exists too because it gives our life meaning, value, and purpose. And I think we made that point very clearly. Next week, we're going to be heading into a different question. This is going to be on the moral argument, and we alluded to that some in today's class. But it's just the idea that in looking at morality, looking at conscience, does that in some way point to a God or a Judeo-Christian God? Uh, Does it mean that there is a God at all? And we'll be looking at that next week as Scott Frizzell teaches on that. I hope you've had a great week so far. I hope the rest of this week is incredible for you. If you have any questions, reach out to us. We'd love to see you here at Highland on Sundays at 10 o'clock, and we will see you next week.